The United States is in the midst of an economic trend where masses of people are voluntarily leaving their jobs. Reasons cited are low pay, lack of advancement opportunities, feeling disrespected, not being able to be their genuine selves at work, childcare, flexibility in work hours, and many others. This trend has been named the Great Resignation. This week's guest, Keith Boykin, says he's not surprised by this trend at all. But he also points to an important and less cited reason, which is in the title of his new book, exclusively available on Scribd, Quitting, Why I Left My Job for a Life of Freedom. Now, Keith is no ordinary quitter. He is ahead of the curve on this, way ahead of the curve on this. He's an OG at quitting. He's an OG at quitting to pursue experiences that are important to him and to leave a place of employment that is no longer serving him. He's also not ordinary given that he's a double Ivy League graduate who quit what many would deem to be a dream job, working in the White House. But here's the thing, by not being handcuffed to others' expectations, society's expectations, and other people's idea of success, he's been able to author six books, host his own talk show, become a noted political commentator, be a producer of uh, TV and film, and travel the world. Having said that, Keith writes a book that speaks to the good and bad of quitting. This is like a field guide to the great resignation because the bills don't quit. And we as a country have a fractured social contract that doesn't have a plan to take care of its older citizens in the way previous generations were taken care of. And we still stand out amongst rich nations and not having universal health care. So quitting ain't easy and it ain't for everyone. But Keith paints a picture as to why pursuing experiences and freedom and designing the life you want is worth it. Keith and I discuss this and more on this episode of The Parlay in All Blue. Keith Boykin, welcome to The Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm great. great. Glad to be here. Well, listen, I want to thank you for spending time with us as you are as your new book is out available on, on Scribd exclusively quitting why i left my job to live a life of freedom i will tell you that in my reading of the book i actually read it pretty quickly because although our paths are different it did speak to a lot of things that i have either thought about or known or what have you i found it very interesting so so there we go. Congratulations on a on a great book. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's a challenge, you know, because it's a shorter book than what I usually write because it's an ebook. So I think it's only eighty four pages or something like that. And I, I think my last book was three hundred pages. So, <laughs> so yeah. when you think when you're writing a shorter piece, you it's easier, but it's actually kind of harder because you have to figure out what you can and can't say because you don't have as much space. Oh, my, my God. As someone who's written essays before, it's much harder to write a poem because you've got to get everything into a short amount of space. Whereas the essay, you got a whole lot of time or what have you. But anyway, 84 pages or 684 pages. It's a, it's a great book. And I'm hoping that people will check it out for a number of reasons. Before we get into it, just want to start with what was your motivation? Why did you write the book? Well, you know, this is 2022. And last year, 47 million people left their jobs. And I kept hearing all this discussion about the great resignation and people were quitting and this new phenomenon called quitting. And I thought about it. I said, well, this isn't really that new. A lot of people have been doing this for, for years. And I thought about my own life story. And I remember I've quit many times over, over the years, different jobs. Because I think that the whole point is to, to find what works for you, what makes what has meaning for you, what makes you happy. But we often get forced into these trajectories and we don't have much choice and we don't think we have much choice. And I want to be able to know that, yes, you can have a choice. And it's not always easy, but it, it, it's worthwhile if you if you choose to follow that path. 
Yeah, yeah. Your your book actually reads like a field guide to the uh, great resignation is, is what I thought of in reading it. I will start, though, that you are not the typical quitter <laughs> in, the sense that, in the sense that your early life was built around someone who's geared towards high achievement and what I would call all-American success. Right. So it's it's not a typical story here. And I also have to either, I don't know, either chastise you or, or humbling me for your early political career. My first votes were for Mondale and Dukakis. Wow. <laughs> and you worked on those campaigns. Yeah. And, and so you started off with a, a political bug. Why don't you take us back to sort of that period of life and, and move us forward towards quitting. Yeah, I started out in politics, which is still something I'm interested in now and, and, and doing now. But um, I'm 57 years old and I um, had, I, how old am I? I just thought about it. I just lost track. <laughs> I just had a birthday and I forgot how old I am. Um, okay. But anyway, I uh, was in high school in the 80s when Ronald Reagan was the president and I worked on my first campaign for a congressional candidate in Florida, and he lost. And then two years later, uh, while I was still in college, I volunteered for Walter Mondale's campaign when he ran for president. He lost. And then um, two years after that, I volunteered for Julian Bond's campaign when he ran for Congress against John Lewis when that seat opened up and he lost. That was 86. And two years after that, I worked for Michael Dukakis's campaign when he ran for president and he lost. And then the year after that, I worked for a um, license collector candidate in St. Louis, Missouri, and she lost. And then um, when I graduated from law school, I got a job offer to go work in the Clinton campaign. And everybody thought it was a horrible idea for me to do because I'd never worked for anybody who won anything before. But somehow he won. And the last time was a charm. And I ended up getting a job working in the White House because of that. Yeah, yeah. No, so I mean, so and and listen, I want to wanted you to to go through that because there are certain things that I think that people get wrong about the the character of people that they deem are quitting or you know leaving it as if it's something that they don't have the perseverance or the the professional acuity to to make it or what have you. But this is far from the uh, opposite of what's happening in the Great Resignation. And you said you weren't surprised by the Great Resignation. Not at all, because I feel like a lot of things have been happening in our country. Part of it is that, you know, I'm thinking about my parents and my grandparents, and they never made as much money as I did, but they had more stability than I did because they were raised in a generation where you go to, you get a job after high school or college, if you go to college, if you're lucky enough, and you stay in that job forever. <laughs> and, you know, you retire and you get a, a gold watch and pension. And there was a sense of job security back then when labor unions were strong and the social contract was more expected that you would be, you would be taken care of. But that social contract started to fall apart in the 80s, in the Reagan era, and since that time, people don't have any expectation they're going to be in one job forever. They have expectations they're going to move every few years from job to job to job. And they know that the, the companies don't have any loyalty to them anymore because the companies, as soon as they figure out a cheaper way to, to produce the same product, they're going to get rid of those, those workers and, and put in a robot or a machine or, or a computer or something to do that job or get a cheaper worker or go overseas to someplace to do the same work. So um, when people start to become more aware of this, and yet we're still trapped in this, this cycle where we feel like we have to work more, we don't have time off, we don't have weekends, we don't have vacations, we don't have childcare or family leave, all these different things that people need just to be able to have comfortable lives, we start to ask ourselves, well, why are we working so hard? What are we accomplishing out of this? Yeah, what are we getting out of this and is this fulfilling? So you mentioned, you know, your parents, my parents' generation, and that sort of working a place and having all of these sort of political or social or economic structures to sustain in terms of pension and health care and those things. But I do want to go back to before you get to the White House, because you mentioned being at a law firm, you were at Harvard Law, and that seems to me as someplace that would be 
steering people towards the machine. And you mentioned in your book that the I think it was the dean of the law school or a dean that sort of implied that that was kind of you guys mission. That is exactly right. You know, I remember watching the paper chase back in the 80s, I think. And that was one of the things that inspired me to want to go to Harvard Law School. And the whole notion of the paper chase was that the, the dean of the law school would come in on the first day and tell everybody, look to your left and look to your right. One of you will not be here. And it was this whole yeah. sort of competitive cutthroat environment. That wasn't my experience at all. It was, instead of like this competition, it was uh, more of a look to your left, look to your right. One of you is going to be a, a U.S. senator. One of you is going to be a CEO, you know, type of thing. It was like, welcome to the club. And the club is basically, how do we perpetuate the status quo? How do we uh, keep the, 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 we, the wheels of capitalism running? And the dean of the law school seemed to, to suggest was there was nothing wrong with going to work in corporate law firms and doing the bidding for big oil companies and gas companies or big pharma or, or gun dealers or tobacco, tobacco manufacturers, just as long as you are, you know, making money. And I didn't think that's why I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to go to law school, not because I wanted to be a lawyer, because I wanted to learn how law worked and operated in our lives. And um, it was it was a frustrating experience for me. But I think it, it, a lot of people get into this situation where they feel like they don't have any choices. And they end up with what I call golden handcuffs, which means you have all these resources, you have money and, and, and things like that, but you don't feel like you can do anything with it. You don't have any freedom. And I didn't want to be trapped in that. I wanted to have the freedom to be able to live my life and to do things I wanted to do as well. Yeah. And so, so I think that's important. And I'm, I want to ask you, you know, as we go through this was that, that idea of freedom, was that a point in time thought for you or was that something that you evolved into? I think it is something I've always believed now I think about it because I, you know, I, I, I've always been an outsider when, ever since I, went to high school in Florida. We moved from St. Louis, Missouri. And I was born in sort of the, this, this in the hood. And then we moved to the suburbs in St. Louis. And then we moved to Clearwater, Florida. And we were in a very white area, very white, very middle class, upper middle class. And I wasn't even one, any one of those things. And so I always felt like I didn't fit in with everybody else. And I was very liberal too. And everybody else was very conservative. So I think the sense of being different made me feel like I wanted to be free not to fit into this little box. I wanted to be free to just sort of do my own thing. Uh, and most of my classmates ended up going to school, to college in Florida. The ones who went to college went to college in Florida. I didn't want to be in Florida. I wanted to get out of Florida. So I think even the idea of going to New Hampshire, of all places, to go to college was a ridiculous thing for a lot of people. In cold New Hampshire, this black kid from Florida going all the way up to the snow didn't make any sense. But I just always kind of felt like there's something just driving me to do that. So I hadn't thought about it until you just mentioned it. But I guess it is something that's been in, been with me for a long time. Yeah. So what's funny is, is that my my daughter, who's now she recently graduated from Howard. But when she was going through that whole selection process, she was admitted into your alma mater, uh, Dartmouth. But now these these days. Kids can look out on YouTube and I said, so what are you going to do? And she looked out and she saw a lot of young white boys, young white men drinking in in the cold. And we're here in Atlanta. She said, no, I think I'm good. So she ended up in the exact opposite from that. But this isn't her podcast. And I promise not to to make this about them. Having said that, now, you 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 said that there is a sort of a direction. And I think all of us, whether anybody listening, whether you are at state school or if you go to military, you lead a military, there is this idea of sort of getting a good job and stable. And that that is some sense of of almost goodness or success. But in a way, maybe not financial success, you weren't in a corporation, but your first job is in in, in the White House, which would for most people, listen, that would be the dream job. That would be the destination. Talk to me about your time in the White House and sort of the good and the sort of, okay, now it's time for me to leave part of it. 
Well, you know, I never expected I'd be working in the White House. I just I just wanted to uh, work in politics. But when I got a chance to work in the White House, I jumped at that. So I quit my job working for a law firm in San Francisco so I could go work for the White House. And then after being in the White House, I realized, it, you know, it's exciting. You get to see the president. You get to work on major policy issues. But I realized that they really weren't prepared for me. I mean, here I was, a double Ivy League graduate, just out of law school, and I knew a lot of people in the campaign and in the government because I'd worked with these people in previous campaigns, and they had me doing this meaningless job. <laughs> I mean, it was fortunately, it was the easy job, so every day, I think by 10 o'clock or 9, 9 or 10 o'clock, I was done, and so I could do whatever, not a.m., I could do whatever I want. So everything that I liked about the job I had in the White House was what I chose to make of it. It wasn't what they assigned me to do, it was what I chose to do. So I started working on all these issues that I cared about, issues that interested me. And I enjoyed that, but I still felt like I was being underutilized. And I had to sort of fight just to be you know, at the table a lot of the times. So when I finally decided I was going to leave the White House after a couple of years, my direct supervisor made this comment to me. She said, oh, I'm so glad you're leaving because you're really not being properly used here. And I, I thought to myself, well, why did anybody tell me this the whole time I was there? <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. But when yeah. you, you know, you kind of do things, you don't really think about them. And I, I was, you know, in my 20s at the time, I was working in the White House. And I was just kind of like, hey, this is an opportunity. Let me do it. But I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I learned from it. But I'm also glad I left it because... Um, I think if I hadn't, I would still be doing the political thing all these years, working in government. And I've had so many other careers since that time, fortunate to have done that. Yeah. And leaving the White House, it's not like you went and then turned around and and worked for a big oil company or a big law firm or anything like that. Your first sort of quitting experience, you go into the not-for-profit world. And and listen, the, one of the things that I want to make sure that kudos to you and to anyone listening and, and that will get this book and read it, is that you paint a picture of some really great experiences, but it, it wasn't always all good either. Uh, so your first sort of quitting experience, talk a little bit about that and what you learned from it. Yeah, you know, when I wrote this book, I wanted to make sure that I gave an honest portrayal because I feel like I have a good life now, but I, it wasn't always that way. And I think a lot of people say to me, well, I can't, I can't possibly quit my job or, or take that chance because I don't know how I'm going to support myself and provide for myself. I don't know either. I just knew I didn't want to be doing what I was doing. So I just decided I was going to make it, make it work somehow. And I think that the most important choice in the process is just you have to be committed to the goal. You have to be committed to the goal of self-employment. And that's what I decided to do from the beginning. Regardless of what happens, I knew I did not want to go back to work for another job. And it wasn't an easy thing to do. I had experience working in a nonprofit that didn't have any money to pay me. And I, I kind of understood that in a general concept where they said, we don't have any money, you, you know, we don't have a lot of money. You have to, you have to raise your own salary. I'm thinking, okay, well, the next year, I'll have to raise my salary. I didn't know from the moment I started, I would, they had no money to pay me at all. And so I started out in a deficit. And then I had to get the board members to do their part to, to uh, raise money, and they weren't able to do so. And it was just a really difficult experience for me. Um, I, I went from having this stable government job to having a very unstable nonprofit job with no steady income, where I was actually using my money to help support the organization. It was just a really bitter experience for me. It, 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 unfortunately, it turned me off from the nonprofit world. I, did, I worked as, an, as a board president of another nonprofit later, but I decided I didn't ever want to work for a struggling nonprofit or any nonprofit again after that. And nothing against nonprofits. I think nonprofits right. do great work, but it was, it was a lot for me, and it just burned me out on the experience of trying to do that again. Yeah. So during that time, and, and, and you you mentioned that, and, and listen, as someone who's worked on the board side of nonprofits, uh, for people who, first off, I think we need more people 
that are in service of whatever it is that's important to you. And nonprofits are a great way to do that. But I will say that idealism meets the cold, hard reality of where's the money. And so, you know, one of the questions that I wanted to ask is that, yes, you can quit, but do the bills quit? Like, do the, the light? <laughs> No, they do not. The bills do not quit. Oh, no, they don't. And uh, yeah, you know, I wish I knew all the things that I know today. I wish I had known 25 years ago when I quit my first job, just what I would need to do in order to survive financially. But I was more committed to the, to the idealism uh, of it than the practicality of it. And that's unusual because people, you know, they look at somebody like me and they say, oh, you went to Harvard and you work in the White House, you must be a very practical person. In some ways I am, but I'm also an idealist too. And so the idealism part, especially for me as a young person, is what inspired me to do that. And it was not easy. There were there were moments when I didn't know how I was going to pay my bills or moments when I couldn't pay my bills, when my credit got messed up, when I was almost, I was almost evicted from my apartment. I, I had all, every negative poss- almost every negative possible experience you can think of. In order to get to the point where I finally realized you know, how to make this work. And so I'm hoping that by sharing my story, that people will A, see that it's not always easy, but B, see that if you plan it out and you focus on your plan, you can actually make it work. And hopefully it doesn't take you 20, 25 years to figure it out, but you have some sort of guide to see how, how other people can do it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. You talked about how your mother and father sort of gave you some guidance or just by watching them gave you some idea about truthfulness and entrepreneurism and, and you know, giving you some some runway of what it looks like to, to quit. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can. I, I remember what I wrote about my father. I forgot what I wrote about my mom, but my father had a lot of different careers in this job. He quit a lot of jobs, too. The first job I remember my father having was as a bus driver. He was a bus driver for Bi-State in St. Louis, which is like the the St. Louis and Illinois and Missouri bus line. And then he quit that job and he started selling life insurance for New York Life. And the only reason I remember the New York Life part, other than he had some plaques on the the wall, was that I remember when um, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman came on TV, I think in the 70s. And my father was working for New York Life, and they were the sponsor of it. And so we all sat around and watched it, and then the New York Life sponsor thing came on. And then he quit that job, and computers were starting to get bigger. He started working for these different computer companies, CompuGraphic and Mergenthaler, which were like printing companies or whatever. And then after a while, when my parents uh, divorced around the late 70s, early 1980, my father moved to Clearwater, Florida and started his own business. He started a beauty supply business. And my mom moved to uh, Stockton, California. And so the business that my father was doing was uh, perfect for the 80s because everybody was wearing jerry curls back in the 80s. So our whole family, we had to wear jerry curls, you know. And we had the the little orange and red uh, uh, state, I forgot what it was, carefree curl, carefree curl bottles all over the house, you know. And the, the plastic caps you have to wear at night. And then if you leaned on the window and in the car in the back, then you yeah. have smudge on the on the window. You know, that was the experience. So Keith, we, we just cannot let that go at that. <laughs> all right. Because I stopped and I said, okay, Keith Boykin had a jerry curl. So first thing, was it like was it like the really drippy or was it wet? Was it dry? Could you keep it together? Like it was drippy. It was big, wet, and drippy. It was it was like Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Oh man. Oh man. Well, hey, listen, I'm glad we are not there anymore and that people don't have to experience that. And you gotta like wipe off the, the headrest on the seat or any of that. So uh so so thank you for that. Thank you for for, for sharing that. But Keith, as we as we talk now, I think it's important, or I would really like to, because I think in reading your work and and in this book, quitting, you've had some some great experiences, and you talked about idealism. What has your first act of quitting allowed you to be a part of? What social changes? What movements? What things have you you've been able to participate in as a result of that? 
Well, I think I've, I've been able to participate a lot. I mean, first, I've been able to work on political campaigns um, and, and be involved in politics. I've been able to teach young people. I taught at different colleges. I've been able to, to be an activist in the LGBTQ community and activist in the civil rights community. I've been able to do a reality TV show, which is something I never thought I'd be able to do before. been able to, um, to host a TV show and actually be a commentator on TV as well for CNN and MSNBC and to write books, you know, about, about race and sexuality and politics and, um, and quitting and, and lifestyle. And just, it's, it, you know, I think it's just given me that I'm glad you asked this question because I think there's no, it's not really one thing. What it has done is it's given me an opportunity to, to sort of tap into all the different aspects of my identity. Because I think a lot of times, you know, it's like that question you were saying, what do you do? That's a hard question for me because I do, I have like 10 different jobs. Sure. And I don't feel like any one of those jobs defines me. And I feel like I like writing, but I don't want to write all the time. I like going on TV, but I don't want to do that all the time. You know, I'm working on producing some TV and film projects now in Los Angeles, but I like having all these different things to do and having different aspects of my identity. But all these things I do, I'm trying to do in a way that it, it has some sort of meaning to me. So I'm not just, you know, nothing wrong with it I, for, for people who make different choices. But I feel like the best way for me to make a difference is by creating content or books or film, TV, or, or even spoken word that, that is articulating my vision of the world. Yeah. You, you know, you, you mentioned in the, in the book Quitting and your activism and work in the LGBTQ community that at that time, it's certainly in the 90s or what have you, and it's hard for people to understand this, is that there was no Billy Porter. There was no Lori Lightfoot. There was, I mean, they were there. They were there. But in terms of just being open and this is my identity and I'm the mayor of Chicago, you know, it's that wasn't a thing. And one of the, the events that, just a little bit to, to talk about, you talked about taking a group of, gay black men to the million man march. You didn't talk a whole lot about it, but I certainly, we're roughly the same age. I remember that time. That's actually pretty groundbreaking, pretty cutting edge for that time. Something that people now would look at and say, oh yeah, that's that's what would happen. But that's, that wasn't the case in, in the 90s. No, it wasn't. And it, I, I wasn't expecting to be involved in that. But after I started that nonprofit job, that was the one of the first things that we were doing. I jumped right into it, organizing the contingent. I think of two or three hundred black gay men in the Million Man March, and that was um, that was kind of a, a, an unusual thing to do at the time because people weren't doing that. And we marched through the streets of Washington D.C., marched into the into the the mall where uh, Minister Farrakhan was speaking, and we weren't we were well received, you know, for the most part. But we were kind of outsiders, we were party crashers, if you will. And the irony of that is that 10 years later, in 2005, I was at Tavis Smiley's State of the Black Union event somewhere, I can't remember where, maybe Atlanta, and uh, I met Minister Farrakhan in person for the first time, and we, we spoke, and he told me he was planning another Million Man March. We exchanged numbers, and uh, we spoke on the phone a few times, and then we had a meeting, an unusual meeting, but we had a meeting where he asked me to speak at the march. Now, it didn't happen because even in 2005, there were other issues and one of the, the, his deputy for the march uh, didn't want me to speak. But it was just a reflection of just how much things had changed over the course of, of just 10 years. And I never expected I would be sitting down having a meeting with Minister Louis Farrakhan. You know, um, right. so that was uh, kind of groundbreaking for me in, in the first place. But I just I feel like because I've had this sort of unusual life, I've had I've had the opportunity to do things that most people haven't done. I mean, how many people have had a meeting with Minister Farrakhan, uh, worked for Bill Clinton, went to law school with Barack Obama, you know, and, and just all these different things in one life? It just it seems it seems almost incongruous. Or you wouldn't expect that, you know, that one person would be doing all this. Yeah, yeah, one person, and, and listen, and you're still a young man, and it's the thing that I think that people will get from the book is that when you open yourself up to experiences, you will get that back and you will get that freedom to pursue different experiences and not just be 
bogged into one thing or, you know, I went to law school, so I hadn't practicing law for whatever or what have you. So that's great. One thing that that where I wanted to stop and for people who are listening to this season of the show, one of the things that is really bothering me right now and we're at the midterms is that we went through the pandemic and uh, we went through racial reckoning with the horrendous murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's killing and Ahmaud Arbery's killing and all of these things that happened in 2020. But the one thing that's bothered me about all of this, and when I pass by a hospital even right now, and it says heroes work here, right? Or we had these essential workers. In the course of the midterms, I have not heard anything about we need to create an essential workers bill of rights. We need to do something for those people who were heroes. And actually, on a lot of the racial reckoning stuff, we have open and hostile resistance to even black history, which is mundane black history to me, like, you know, Frederick Douglass or, you know, this is what happens during the civil rights movement. So I'm not even talking about complex things. But I want to talk about, because in the book, I thought you really laid it out well. You talked about the social contract. First off, what is broken about the social contract in America right now? Well, I think we moved from an era which existed basically from the New Deal in the 1930s until Ronald Reagan takes office in January 1981, a 50-year time span when the government took responsibility for making sure that it worked to try to improve the quality of people's lives and that we had a sense of community, that uh, people had a sense of we were all in it trying to work for a joint, a a communal purpose. I think that that has been, uh, that has ended. Effectively, it no longer exists since the 1980s, but it actually started before that. It started in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act because the reality is, you know, I wrote about this in my previous book, Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America. The reality is that that social contract was able to exist because both parties, Democrat and Republican, were both racist. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And once the Democratic Party decides in 1964 to shed its 120-year history of racism and finally to embrace the idea of civil rights, then the social contract doesn't exist anymore because one party is advocating for the the old contract, but the other party doesn't want that anymore because they don't want black people to get that. Yeah. yeah. Previously it was both parties didn't want black people to get it. I mean, Frank Franklin Roosevelt signed the social security act um, and uh, made sure that black people were excluded because even though it didn't say that directly, but the types of types of jobs that we were likely to do domestic workers and other types of workers were not included in the social security. So um, that was because the Southern races didn't want that included. So I think the problem we have right now is that Reagan perpetuated this myth that the government just helps the poor and those poor people were black and brown and this whole welfare clean mentality. So people started being anti-government and not wanting to use government to help them. So we haven't raised the minimum wage in, in more than a decade in this country, yes. which, which is ridiculous. And it's not a livable wage. You can't live off of $7.25 an hour. We don't have a health care coverage for every American in this country. Even this is something that Democratic presidents have been trying to do since Harry Truman back in the 1940s. We don't have um, free college education, even for public schools in this country, like other countries do. And, you know, I graduated from Dartmouth College in the 80s. And I think the tuition there was $7,000 a year in Ivy League school. Ain't going to happen now. In my lifetime, that's probably probably cost that in a week now. In my lifetime, it's expanded now. It's probably like $100,000 a year. And and, and it's it's, it's absurd that the the inflationary cost in the education skyrocketed so out of control and that students are graduating. I don't, I don't know if, if, if your daughter had, had this issue or not, but a lot of students are graduating with, with enormous amount of debt. And if you go to professional school, 
to be a lawyer or, or, or a doctor or, or, or get an MPA or something. You can graduate with, with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And we didn't have that in my generation even, much less the generation before. So I think we've, we've just slowly sort of whittled away all those different things that, that people were expected to have, even the idea of having affordable housing. You know, back in, in the post-war era, they actually built houses for people, the, the GI Bill. They're helping people to go to pay for college and buy homes in the suburbs. The government was doing that. Today, they would call that welfare. But they were helping white people back then, so it wasn't a problem. But when you start doing it today, people think, oh, you're only going to help black people, and they don't want to do it. So the combination of the racism and the social contract breaking down, is just it's made impossible to, to, to create any kind of change. Yeah, yeah. And I will say we're we're talking about your current book, Quitting Why I Left My Job to Live a Life of Freedom. But the previous book, Race Against Time and the Politics of the Darkening America, I, I recommend that highly because you succinctly cover a lot of ground there. One of the things that you don't specifically say in the book, but I tell people all the time is that we have to understand that prior to civil rights for black folks, a lot of the things that we call socialism now, America was super popular and super okay with. You got to understand when you talk about bus boycotts in Montgomery and Little Rock and in Baton Rouge, and I think Jackie Robinson in Lubbock, Texas, these are big metropolis. So what I'm saying, small and medium-sized Southern cities were not only had public transportation, they were so okay with public transportation that they had a social sort of order around white people sit here, black people sit there. The number of public pools that were just concreted and just closed down places in West in Virginia, just say, we'll just shutter our public schools for a while. And so it's this idea when people say that we're talking about class or taxes or what have you, Follow the rights of black folks <laughs> and the gains of black folks. And it will tell you so certain like, you know, the whole thing of follow the money. No, follow the black people. And that'll tell you whether this is actually a class thing or a race thing. We can see that in Jackson, Mississippi. We can see yeah. it right now with the water crisis in Jackson. I mean, there's, there's a tendency whenever you see something like this to point the finger at the local officials who are black and democratic and say, well, why aren't they doing their job? Well, part of the problem is they don't have the resources to do their job because the state and federal government officials took the money away from those cities and transferred it to the suburbs. So you're draining the tax base. At the same time, you have white flight, white people moving out to the suburbs where the black people are remaining in the cities. All this taking place over the course of 40, 50 years. And, and, and even when they try to do something, they don't have the ability to do it because the state government has more has authority over it. So, for example, in Jackson, they tried to, to have it have a, to levy a, a tax or to try to, to create some sort of proposal to, to create funding. But the state government, the Republican white state government denied them in Atlanta. When the mayor of Atlanta tried to, to impose COVID mandates, the state government, the Republican white state government said, no, you can't do that. In Florida, we're simply trying to teach about race and history and the Civil War and slavery and segregation. The state Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, says, no, we're going to pass a law that you can't talk about anything in class that makes white people feel bad. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there are people who I I feel for teachers right now. Uh, My mom was a teacher and I know many teachers who a lot of black teachers from a generation were just used to this. This textbook is crap. This is what happened. Let me supplement your education right now. You can lose your license. You can lose your job. Who knows? I don't know that those laws specifically, some of them may even have criminal intent. And I don't know that for sure, but it's horrible was happening. And I will say just to, to pause a little bit on Jackson, because Jackson State is my alma mater. I made reverse migration as my parents went from Alabama to Chicago. And uh, so actually my my now that I think about it, my first vote was actually for Jesse Jackson in the primary. And then I voted for Mondale. When I turned 18, I voted for Jesse and then Mondale later. But And then I went to school in Jackson and my son is there now. 
at Jackson State. And I, I think that people, when they see it, see what's happening there, you have to look at this as a political problem and a failure of government. And much like, you know, Katrina is, you know, you can, you can, there's blood on all sides of the aisle of local and state or what have you, but Mississippi is unique in the sense of its voter suppression is on 10. And then there are structural things written into the state constitution in terms of who can hold state office. You have to cross that 55% barrier, which almost in a weird way, Mississippi still has the highest percentage of black folks in the union, 38%. But with that 38%, it's still impossible to have a black person win state office there. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that during this midterms, and I'm here in Georgia so now, and so I'm really watching this, and I saw from your social media that you watched the, uh, and you, you put out some tweets on the debate between Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes. Right, right. Now, we have in Georgia coming up Friday, Raphael Warnock, oh. Against her Walker, as someone who is a student of politics, are you expecting a Lincoln Douglas type of statesman debate with this, or what? What? No, I, I think what I think Herschel Walker is being coached, and he actually is in the better position in terms of the expectations game because nobody expects anything from him, and so it reminds me, if you will, of the nineteen eighty Carter Reagan debate. Because people assumed Carter was going to just win this debate and Reagan was going to show up and just be this this wild-eyed maniac who's going to destroy the country. And all you had to do was smile and tell a few jokes and and just dis, dis abuse people of that notion of him. So I think what Herschel Walker has to do, it's a, it's a little bit harder, but all he has to do is to try to not make a fool of himself, if he can do that at least. Then I think people he can walk out and say, well, we won the debate because Raphael Warnock, he's an experienced senator and he's a preacher and he's been debating his whole life and all this kind of stuff, which is what they're going to say, regardless of whether they win or lose. And, um, you know, I don't expect it to be a very intelligent debate. Yeah. I expect that um, Herschel Walker will probably have a few one-liners that he's rehearsed and he's ready to, to throw out there and he'll continue to talk about that for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. I'm not expecting much. And hey, this is just me. I I wonder if they will even have it. But to move on, this this something. So listen, when you talked about the the things that are not in the in the social contract, medical leave, health care for all, we just talked about clean drinking water, time off or what have you. Those are things that I hope that at some point our political discussion gets back to this largely missing in this midterms. But you did take the time to talk about some more personal or introspective issues that prevent people in terms of quitting. Talk about the hard work trap and just the idea of, of what hard work, that, that sort of mentality around hard work. Yeah, this is something that at first occurred to me when I was in college. I was a, a foreign study program in Spain. In Spain in the 80s, I don't know if they still do it, they would have a siesta hour in, in the city I was in, in Granada, which was actually like like two or three hours, where they would, everything would close down for two or three hours in the middle of the day. And I think it was like 12 to 3, 12 to 2. And the only thing that was open were bars and restaurants. And so we were in class from like 9 to 12, and then we'd, we'd be off for a couple of hours, and we'd all go drink. And uh, there was a bartender at one of the restaurants we used to go to who first told me this thing, this saying that I've never forgotten, which is that in Spain, they work to live. And in America, we live to work. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about it before. And I know it's a generalization, but I felt like there's this cultural norm in this country that if you work hard, then you're going to be able to succeed and get get everything you want. And it's completely a farce. There are people who work their asses off and never get anywhere near the things that they're supposed to get. My, my, my son in Florida has three jobs and he's barely able to support himself. Whereas there are other people who have one job, if you have the right skill set, the right background, who are able to, uh, to, to do very well. 
And a lot of it depends on, you know, what your background is. So I mentioned an example in the book where I talk about a person who works at the country club in high school, you know, maybe part-time on the weekends, as opposed to a Latina who works in um, a fast food restaurant and works 40 hours a week and still goes to school. They may end up with similar grades or even the same grades, but the person who actually has to grind out and work the, the, that, that fast food job is working her, her butt off. And she's never going to be able to, in most situations, I shouldn't say never, but very unlikely she's going to be able to achieve the same level of success as the person who, who just happened to work in the country club. Look at Donald Trump. Inherited yeah. $400 million, $400 million from his father. And people think of him as some sort of self-made billionaire. Right. Hey, listen, I will tell you, as somebody who grew up on the south side of Chicago in a very working class, middle class, black neighborhood and environment, church and all of those things, everybody in my neighborhood, men and women, worked hard. None of them became rich by working hard. So when I hear, you know, this whole thing of you got to work hard, well, I know people that work hard. Listen, we're not talking about being lazy or just not applying yourself, but this idea that hard work is going to yield success, it's not even close to the to the same thing because you, you're not taking into account. We've done several shows on zip code here and how zip code, your public school, the quality of air you're going to get, your transportation options can determine so much about the trajectory of, of, of your life. But here's what they do. They find one person who was able to make it out, you know, and they use that person as a hypothetical example. Well, if Oprah could do it, if if Will Smith could do it, if Beyonce could do it, why can't you? You right. know, well, there are exceptional people who can do that, but but for the most part, and and there's nothing wrong with that. I applaud them. No. But but for the most part, though. My argument is that if you work 40 hours a week for a job, you should be able to support yourself. And people shouldn't be calling you lazy because you can't pay your bills. No, the problem isn't that, you, the problem isn't that you're lazy. The problem is that we have a, a system that is so inequitable that people who work that hard aren't being fairly compensated for their labor. Yeah, I, I worked here in Atlanta, not worked. I volunteered for a while at a, at a homeless shelter. It's no longer there. It's on peach tree and pine. And I would go there and just serve meals or what have you. And I was astonished that there would be people coming in and, and people that I would that I would see and know when I say no, I mean, know them visually, not know them as person to person. But I see them around town coming in with their car wash uniform on or some fast food uniform in there in homeless shelters. And it really dawned on me at a time you had people working hard as hell and they're not able to just do the basics. They're coming into the homeless shelter just to eat. I will also say one of the things that you talked about is quitting the idea of comparisons and consumption of how that, how quitting that can lead to a life of freedom. Well, I think that's really the most important part for me because um, it's a hard thing to do. It's hard to stop comparing yourself to other people, especially in the culture we live in today with social media I really feel sorry for a lot of the young people because I didn't, we didn't, I didn't grow up with social media where every time, if you're a 20 year old or if you're a high school student or college student, every time you have this phone with you all the time, first of all. And then every five minutes you're checking and you're saying, oh, well, this friend has this job and this friend is on this vacation and this friend is, it, it just bought, bought this house or this friend is just got this promotion or this friend, uh, you know, has this outfit or something, or this friend is in perfect shape. And everybody is so much better than you are. That's at least that's the impression they're creating out there. And that that makes it really hard for people just to live their lives without being inundated with images all around them of people who are essentially telling them implicitly, you're not good enough. And I I, I think that's a dangerous trend that we we've entered into. This the second part of this though, when you start not it's not just the comparisons but there's just this notion of what we choose to value and what we don't choose to value in society. And um, I think capitalism has taught us that some people are more valuable than others. Yep. And we've bought into that. We've bought into the idea that conspicuous consumption of materialism is what, what is determinative of our wealth or of our worth, as opposed to 
are we doing something we love? Are we doing something that, that, that is making a difference in the world? Are we doing something that makes us happy? Not everybody has to be Einstein, you know, or, or Obama. It's okay if you just want to do whatever job you want to do, but you should be able to support yourself when you do that and not be made to feel guilty for doing that. You know, one of the best TV shows out there on network TV right now is Abbott Elementary, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love it. Yeah. And I love this show because even though it's funny, it does a great job of telling the story of the of the experience of school teachers, of public school teachers. I was an eighth grade social studies teacher and 10th grade teacher at Lithonia High School in the Atlanta area years ago. And I had no idea because I didn't go to an under-resourced school, and that wasn't even really under-resourced comparatively, but I had no idea what a struggle it was today, that, that even back then, just to get basic resources for school teachers. And yet we say we value school teachers, but we don't give them the budgets that we give police officers. We don't give them the budgets that we give to the military. And so we have to ask ourselves, what do who do we really value in society and why? Yeah. So there's two things that I would follow up on that is that that idea of rich and being smart and worthy. We value people, some people more than others is a part of how we get to Trump to begin with. This idea that a rich person is also qualified to do this. It's like we don't we're not looking at actual accomplishment, actual experience. We're not looking at intelligence. In fact, it's almost like being intelligent is a bad thing. Right. And it used to as somebody, again, who grew up in a working class neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. People valued when, OK, now it's time to, for the community to do something. Let's try to pick some people who've been to school or know something about this to represent the community. Hey, listen, we all in. I'm not saying that I'm not smart, but this person is prepared. Right. To lead and talk in this way. And so it's a very. We're headed into some dangerous territory, which is, I think, how we get to Herschel Walker, whose accomplishment is, you know, he's a great football player. But other than that, there's nothing remarkable. And I'm not even talking about how wildly inadequate he is in terms of just knowing about politics and all the personal stuff. You could just throw that out. He's done nothing that says he should be one of the hundred people that we depend on to make laws. So, and he didn't even live in Georgia until a few, until a few months ago, he was living in Texas. Yeah. You, you, listen, I, I tell people for the people who are conservatives here, when I look at, okay, you just want to win the Senate, but if you are a conservative and you've got stuff that you want to have happen in Georgia, Herschel Walker can't get it done. Maybe he can do what the national Republican senators say to do, but he can't help Georgia because that's a train wreck. Anyway, I, I don't want to get off of it. That, I could go on and on and on about that. Keith, you said that the point of this is quitting and leaving a job for a life of freedom. What is freedom? Freedom is a sense of being able to live your life on your own terms in a way that works for you. There's no one definition. My concept of freedom may be different from your concept of freedom. But ultimately, it's about having that, that agency, if you will, to be able to make those decisions. For me, my freedom is I'm in New York right now. I just came in this morning on the red eye from Los Angeles, which is where my other apartment is. My freedom is that I don't have to ask anybody if I want to come from New York to LA and from LA to New York. CNN asked me to come in town today to, to do something. And I said, sure, I'll come in. Tomorrow I'm going off to Harvard to give a speech up there. But I don't have to check in with a boss and, and find out if I can get time off. Uh, freedom means that I can decide if I want to, I can go on a vacation somewhere and, and travel somewhere. Freedom means that uh, a week and a half ago, I went to a funeral in Memphis that I didn't really want to go to the funeral, but at least I had the ability to go. I didn't have to ask anybody permission to do that. You know, I, I, I've often talked to people about this, and it's not about money. Because I've, I've often said that people assume that when they see somebody who's rich and successful, they think that what they want is the money. But what they really want, I think, is they want the freedom that they think comes with that money, the ability to be able to travel when they want or to go to a restaurant they want to do or whatever it is they think that they want to do. But that isn't always related to money. Sometimes it's related to other things that, that don't have anything to do with, with money. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. I appreciate that. And you coined the term in this. Well, I don't know if you coined it, but I, I like the term Freedom evangelist. You said you're a freedom evangelist. What's a freedom evangelist? You know, it's so funny you said that because 
I kind of said that seriously when I wrote it, but I didn't think that it was going to resonate in the way that it did. So when I first wrote it, my agent read that and loved that term, freedom evangelist. I didn't even think anything about it. It just was one of many words. Then the publisher saw it and they loved it too. They were going to make a whole publicity campaign about it. But then they decided not to in the end because I think they said they did some research. And when they looked at Freedom Evangelist, it came up with um, a lot of sort of very socially conservative movement that I didn't want to be associated with. But for me, I not even knowing what how it had been used in other terms, it just meant that I'm an advocate for people finding ways to be free in their lives. And when I say say that, I don't mean quitting your job is the only way to be free. And I'm not even telling everybody in the book they need to quit their job. Sometimes we just need to quit the mentality that we have when we go to our jobs. If you want to go work in your job every day, you feel that's safe and secure for you, that's fine. But I'm, I'm asking people to sort of investigate, are they getting what they need out of that? And if they can, to sort of quit the mentality where they feel like they have to be beholden to their to their employer. Then if you can't do that, if you can't change your work situation I'm asking people to go a step further and change the whole social contract altogether. So we change the laws and policies so that people can have a, a livable wage. They can have health care. They can be able to afford to, to go to school without going into debt. They can find affordable housing and a clean environment and safe drinking water. And they can have criminal justice that's not ra- racially specific or racially profiled. I'm asking for us to create a new a new system or a network of systems where we can actually do that. So freedom for me is just about reevaluating the choices we've made as a society and individually in a way that allows us to maximize our autonomy and agency. Awesome. So Keith, as we as we close up and we're coming to an end, one of the questions, so for people who will read the book, Quitting, Why I Left My Job to Live a Life of Freedom with, by Keith Boykin, we ask everyone who appears on the show, what does it mean to live well? And it's a personal answer. For me to live well goes back to um, a couple of things I learned in college. I, I won this award at the end of my freshman year in college. It was, it was given to an outstanding uh, man in the freshman year, freshman class. And it came with an inscription on the uh it, no, it was it was a two hundred and fifty dollar uh, account at the books at the library, so I could buy whatever books I wanted. And each book had an inscription on it, inscription on it inside, and the inscription said, "Honesty with oneself, fairness toward others, sensitivity to duty, and courage in its performance." On these qualities rest manhood, and on manhood rests the structure of society. So, for for me, that is what living well means. It means being able to be honest with myself, uh, to, to try to be fair toward others, to, to be to have a sense of duty and be, to be sensitive to, to it, and to, to be courageous enough to try to perform that duty. That's what living well is. It's not about having a mansion or 20 cars or bling bling on my, on my wrist. It's really just about living a life of integrity. And um, it's not an easy thing to do uh, in yep. today's world. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I'm going to put a couple of things together from your previous book and from what you wrote in, in, in Quitting. So in this current book, Quitting, you talked about in that phase of, I think it's a phase of leaving the White House and then with the nonprofit about reading books on spirituality or what have you. And then in, in Race Against Time, you talked about attending St. Augustine's Catholic Church and how that was a good experience for you or what have you. So I want to ask this just to round out that living well. What does spirituality have to do with living well? This is a tough question for me because I don't want to feel, I don't want people to think I'm preaching that they have to follow my routine or whatever. But for me, it means being grounded. It means having a sense of a higher purpose and, um, and knowing that my existence is not just for myself, but it also has some benefit, some contribution to society at large. And also, you know, my spirituality is grounded in, in, in Christianity, although I'm not really a 
devout Christian in the same way that my mom is, but but that's where I learned my spirituality. And so I always resort to Christianity in terms of explaining it. I know there are people who are Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and everything else, and I'm not trying to disrespect their experience. But I go back to Matthew, the the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 32, 37, I think it is, where Jesus asked by the Pharisees, what is the most important commandment? And he says that is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, he says, rest all the laws and the prophets. So to me, that's what it's all about. It's all about love, finding a way to love ourselves and love everybody else around us. And when I see some of the things that people are doing out there who call themselves Christians, sending immigrants from Florida and Texas to, to Massachusetts and Washington, D.C. and New York, or, you know, just telling people that, that you, you can't teach your history in, in school or locking people up and, 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 and not wanting to, to sort of give a sense of forgiveness and redemption. I don't understand how what kind of Christianity they're talking about. Yeah, no, no, listen, that is complete bullshit. You you a month ago fly people coming over that are desperately seeking a better life, waste the Florida taxpayers twelve million dollars to fly them to Martha's Vineyard, where, you know, there aren't the services for them. They don't know where the hell they are or anything. And then, you know, as the world has it. Now you go back and a few weeks later and ask for billions of dollars, which the state needs. Right. I look at the hurricane caused some some horrific damage. So I'm I'm not saying that it's not there, but I think that is super hypocritical. And uh, people should really look at what people do and not what they say on these things. So, Keith, we end on something like the name of the show is the Parlay and All Blue Parlay Conversation. The All Blue is my frustratedness with not being a jazz musician. So it's oh. I think is the it's like a blue note cover. So I'm oh. all about blues derived music and all of those things. Oh. I noticed in sort of maybe the first, second, third, early on in the book, you said that you were out and listening in Los Angeles and you said to some of your favorite music. What is some of your favorite music? That was funny you say that because it's always changing. But, um, yeah. but you know, my mom loves, loves, loves jazz. All mm. she listens to is jazz. And I'm not as big of a jazz fan as she is, but I listen to it. But I kind of i am ashamed to admit that I, I've been listening to the same things over and over again all the time uh, in L.A. I listen to Seal and Sade a lot. Okay. All right. Okay. I never did before. It just just happens since I moved to LA. But I I was looking for some chill music, and somebody introduced me to this group. Called, this I think it's a group called Bonobo, which I started listening to that, and then I said, "Well, I didn't really want that. I want some more words." So I started. I list, literally. I probably listen to Seal and Sade like every week, and I'm embarrassed to say this because they're not even my two favorite artists, but they're the right. ones. They're the ones that get me in this sort of LA mood all, all the time. My favorite artist is. A male artist is Luther Vandross, and favorite female artist is Whitney Houston. Okay, yeah. Hey, it's hey, I'll, Seal, Sade, Whitney Houston, Luther Vandross. We can stand with all of those things. And the the last question before I get out of here, and I want you to tell people how and where they can find their book. But you mentioned in writing "Race Against Time." that you you were doing a lot of reading, a lot of historical reading and political reading or what have you, and that you didn't have much time for sort of pleasure reading. But you did mention a book called The Prophet oh, There right. Towards the End by Robert Jones Jr. Right. What is that book about? Do you do you remember? And now what, yeah, would you say, yeah. how, what would you say about that book? I don't want to spoil it, but um, and I haven't read it, so I, you know, don't spoil it. But just, just what can what can you tell us without spoiling it? I told my mom to read it, but I think I got it for. But I don't think she ever read it. So it's a book about enslavement, and is it's a an honest portrayal. Well, I don't know how honest portrayal is. I did live through slavery, but uh, it's it's a portrayal of um, resistance against slavery through relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's something I'd never thought about before in, in the way that it's portrayed in the book. But the story is part of what I loved. But part of, the other part of what I loved is the writing. Robert Jones Jr., I think this is the author. He's, he's an amazing writer in the style of um, Morrison and, and, and Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Yeah, I, that was a really deep book. I enjoyed the, the most recent books I've read just in the past week or two. I read a book by a friend of mine called Desire Lines by Carrie Allen Johnson, which is really a book about the HIV AIDS epidemic and one man's journey from the 1970s on to the 1990s. It's a novel. And then the current book I'm reading, which I should have read like a year ago when I first got it, is uh, Shouting in the Fire by Dante Stewart. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which um, is it was also a very, very, very good book. But sometimes I'll, I'll I buy a lot of books, and then sometimes I don't read them because I like I'm doing other things, and I'll go back and like, oh wow, I should have read this a long time ago. But so yeah, yeah. No, an ambitious reader means that you have something to live for, and I will I will add that to, on that Robert Jones Junior. The Prophet. I have to get that because one of my favorite musical pieces is actually I don't think you would call it an opera, but when Marcellus in in the '90s wrote a piece of music and it has a libretto with it for blood on the fields and it's set during enslavement but it's actually about a love story and the male lead and the female lead coming together to understand what freedom means and that it, it's not just for one person that they can if they can get free and getting them free together is actually true freedom now if Wynton Marcellus were listening to this, he would say, man, you just butchered it. You got kind of oh. it, but it is yeah. a, it's, it's a great piece of music. Keith, as we close, tell us where we can find your book. Uh, the book is available exclusively on Scribd. It's available in ebook form and in audiobook because I sat and recorded it. So you can go to Scribd.com and you can put in my name or you can go to my KeithBoykin.com website or Keith Boykin on Twitter or Keith Boykin on Instagram. There's a link directly to the book on, on both of those. And um, I think I should put it on Facebook too. Now I think about it, but yeah, you can just it's 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 actually free, which is kind of weird. Like you don't have to buy the book. I, I I feel like I shouldn't be telling people this, but it's true. It's kind of like Scribd is basically like a Netflix for books. So you can basically you you go the to this to the source. You subscribe. You don't have to pay to subscribe. You get sixty days free. If you choose to continue, you can. If you don't, you can you can quit. But you can go and read the book. And don't have to pay a dime for it. If you want to continue staying with script, you can. So I guess that they're I guess they're determining, you know, based on views and, and and I don't know how that works, like streams, how many people are reading the book. So it's all new to me because I'm used to the, the traditional paper form books. I've written, I think, five books. This is the first one that's not that. So I'm excited to see what happens and how it works. Awesome. All the best to you on that. And like I said for everyone, I enjoyed the book. Keith, thank you for stopping by the parlay in all blue. For everyone else, stay and listen and remember, like, share, leave comments. All of those things help the program. Keith, don't leave, but I'm going to say bye to everyone else. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.